Hey, and welcome to Alex Listens. My name's Alex, and this is the place where I talk about things like politics and philosophy and identity and that kind of stuff. Um, If you're new to Alex Listens, I have a podcast called Alex Listens, and I have a YouTube channel called Alex Listens, and I have a website called www.alex.co. And you may either be listening to this on whatever podcast platform you choose, or you may be watching it on YouTube. So I guess just note that those two options are available for you. You can either listen or watch. Um, Most of the videos will be on YouTube from now on. Some of the past ones won't be, but yeah. Um, So if you're enjoying Alex Listens, there are a number of things you can do to support it. Um, You can support it on Patreon. Um, there'll be a link below. Thank you to the people who have become patrons thus far. You are directly contributing to the things which allow me to make this podcast, um, as a lot of them cost money. So thank you. Um, you can tell a friend I'm squinting so much because the sun is so bright. Um, you can tell a friend, uh, or you can leave a review on iTunes or whatever. Um, yeah, or you can just follow me on social media at Alex Listens on Instagram or email me. <laughs> um, no one emails me, but just fucking email me, you know? Okay, so today I'm going to talk about normativity. So what what is what is normativity? Okay, so before before I answer that question, I'm going to outline the structure of this video, podcast, whatever. Because it's helpful for you, I hope, and it's helpful for me, which is um, important. So I'm going to talk about three things. I'm going to answer three questions, or try to. <clears throat> um, question one, what is normativity? Question two, how do we change it? And question three, how ought we as morally responsible agents how ought we to live in light of the ways live in light so i guess many people probably don't think very deeply about this might be just a supremely arrogant claim but i i think that most people wouldn't be very critical of what is normal um and this is this is something that existential existentialist philosophy existentialism this has been one of its main focuses authenticity um reflecting on the things which have made you the way you are that are out of your control but which are changeable so norms social norms things like that um so that's the third thing i'm going to talk about some lessons in light of the things that I talk about before. Okay, so question one, what is normativity? Um, where to begin? Okay, well, reflect on your life. Okay, so just like, you know, me. Okay, so I'm, it's normal for people who grew up in the area that I grew up in, in a city, Melbourne, um, to go to university. That's not an abnormal move. So because it's normal, it is what is 
potentially expected, it is what is encouraged, and it is a pathway that is paved. So when you contrast the when you contrast the likelihood of going to university as someone who lives in inner city Melbourne with someone who lives rurally, that is outside of, you know, a metropolis or something, I imagine, unfortunately, uh, there are much that, that, that rural students, students outside of the metropolis are significantly underrepresented. Um, and, you know, normativity is just one element of the reasons why that may be so. There may also be things like economic disadvantage, um, lack of resources to schools. But then again, you know, those things are probably normalized. Um, it's probably normal for governments to underfund rural schools, to um, invest less money in rural infrastructure. Um, you know, even this, yeah, yeah. Um, that this, so I guess I haven't provided a very succinct definition of normativity, but what is normal, but that's because there isn't one. Um, I guess what is normal is what is in your small ecosystem. What is normal is what is expected, permissible and common practice. Um, but all you need to do is just remember that your ecosystem, the horizon that you are familiar with is limited. It doesn't extend that far. And there are so many other people in the world who live in different ecosystems to the one you do. And in their ecosystems, not what is considered normal will be very different. Um, For example, in London, it is normal for people who live in the inner city to live with their parents because it's so expensive. In inner city Melbourne, it's not so normal, Um, at least for people I know, for the groups that I frequent um, and for the areas that I've the inner north where I've been raised, it's not so normal. Most people move out. Um, and you know, there's some, there's like a stigma attached to staying at home. It's seen as being, um, I don't know, regressive or as, uh, you know, not having taken a step to maturity or, I don't know, you know, being parasitic, that although you know like whatever if people stay at home that's cool i don't i don't care um but that's not the point the point is that some behavior is the point is that in certain areas some behavior is accepted and and that that doesn't mean anything that isn't a universal principle um so we, when we think about normativity, we need to think about a very, very flexible rule that for some people will feel inflexible. Um, and it's pretty hard to change your own conception of what is normal. 
unless you experience and live and are submerged in someone else's conception of normativity or another community's conception of normativity. And even then, um, you may reject their conception of what is normal and adhere to your own. Um, I'm trying to think of an example. Um, Maybe there are some... Maybe, you know, if if you are a if you live in a progressive area and it's normal for people to be left leaning and then you go to a conservative area where it's normal for people to be conservative maybe you'll be less willing to give up your progressive inclinations even though you are the one who is abnormal in that context or you are the one whose beliefs are abnormal um and this is where we move to the second question um, how do we change normativity? How is normativity changed? And what changes normativity? So Michel Foucault, French 20th century philosopher, sociologist, social critic, whatever, um, he had this theory of, he had this theory that expert discourses configure normativity now what the hell does that mean right um okay let's break it down so what i said was uh expert discourses configure normativity um so an expert discourse is something that is being propped up or that is that assumes a position of self-evident authority um now what does that mean? What does it mean for something to something to assume a position of self-evident authority? Well, an example of an expert discourse in the 21st century in Melbourne is medicine. Um, and presumably that's a good thing. So medicine is an expert discourse because it is something that is self-justifying. So it takes itself to be self-evident. Medicine is truth, or so many people, or so, so many people think. Um, And that means that medicine doesn't have to turn anywhere but itself to justify itself. So, you know, empirical research looks at the world, and the world gives it its answers. Um, So, you know, there's there's no more foundational, there's no other foundational principle that it can turn to. Medicine turns to its own practices to justify itself. Um, Objective. What's it called? Inductive. Inductive methods of research. So you have a hypothesis and you measure that. And then if the things that you're measuring reaffirm the hypothesis, you take the hypothesis to be true until you know, you're, until it's proven wrong. Um, so I guess that's why, side note, that's why everything in medicine is, you know, a theory. Um, but, you know, we take these theories to be true. So medicine is something that can dictate the boundaries of normal and abnormal. So, for example, certain behavior is said to be healthy certain practices are said to be healthy. Um, And 
as such, certain behavior is kind of pushed into the zone of normal behavior. Um, Some things are seen to be healthy and normal. Other things are seen to be unhealthy and pathological. Um, And this is where medicine, this is where Foucault criticizes medicine because a lot of the time, these categories of healthy and unhealthy, of normal and abnormal, are arbitrary. And a lot of t- a lot of the time in the past, they have been co-opted by colonizers to... This is just an example. They have been co-opted by colonizers to justify the their exploits in the colonies or to justify... Um, you know, the the responses of the colonizers to the awful things they were doing. So there was an, a totally fabricated condition called neurasthenia or themia, N-E-U, N-E-U-R-A-S-T-H-E-M or N-I-A. I think that's how you spell it. Um, and, you know, it's it's a condition that... So today, today it's been, you know, completely dismantled as something that, um, (laughs) it's, it's just not, it's just not a condition. It's not a condition. It's not something anyone experiences, but it was used by, um, for example, uh, the Dutch in the East Indies back when it was called that, um, in Dutch East India, um, to justify some of the failures of the colonial program. Um, So, you know, maybe they had set a particular target and, you know, to do X, Y, Z, to group X, Y, Z, and they hadn't been able to do it. And they had been, um, I don't know, shown up by the colonized. Um, They weren't able to get what they wanted. And so they would justify their failure in medical terms. And that would somehow legitimate the failure and make it okay that they failed because they had succumbed to this thing called neurasthenia, themia, whatever, which was, you know, characterized by slow thinking, sluggishness, um, an inability to make proper decisions, uh, laziness, um, all of these things that were supposedly characteristic of living in the colony. Um, because, you know, classic oriental conceptions of conceptions of the world by the colonizer um, are that the place where the colonized live lives is, you know, this kind of wild warm, humid place that, you know, the gentle disposition of the colonizer can't handle. Um, so yeah, that's, that's one way that the expert discourse of medicine can legitimate, um, can make legitimate, uh, is legitimate even a word? Um, can make legitimate, uh, the, you know, the desires of a higher power. So that's what medicine did. Also think about eugenics. Um, 
so eugenics is you know one of the objectives of eugenics was to make was to try and explain superiority uh with respect to skin color by pointing to all of this stuff that supposedly showed why one person's skin meant that they were more xyz than other than another person um and you know that's since been disproven um and is you know has been co-opted by the nazis was co-opted by the nazis and was pioneered by in australia was pioneered by um professors at my university at the university of melbourne and this is kind of an mostly unspoken and unacknowledged thing by the university um until a few years ago there was a prof- there was a building <laughs> named after one of australia's chief eugenicists um and it was only recently you know to 2017 i think the name was changed the professor was either called Richmond Barry or Redmond Berry. And I always get their names confused because they sound the same. So I'm casting a shadow over both of them, but only one of them was a eugenicist. Also, I think. Um, yeah, so check that out if you're interested. There's an interesting article by The Age newspaper, which is uh, an Australian newspaper. Um, so yeah, normativity is dictated by authorities um and sometimes these authorities are things like the institution of medicine which have a highly regulated and codified system for defining things which are often i guess one of the benefits of medicalizing things is that it removes the critic it makes it very difficult for the lay person to criticize the find the the definitions of the world made by medicine because they're so complex and they're using terms that are you know not accessible um and this is something that happens in you know all high powered uh industries so for example the legal system is one of the most convoluted and amorphous and incomprehensible oh it has one of the most amorphous and incomprehensible systems of communication with all of these new term all of these terms and all of this stuff in latin and this particular way of speaking that is not right it's not right because it's not transparent it's hard to understand what lawyers say and i did two and a half years of law school and I don't, I struggle. Um, yeah. And all of these things, um, all of these things go about normalizing stuff. Um, and I guess in, in the case of medicine and law, it's normalizing things by making them unable to be questioned. Um, but you know, the individual can also normalize certain things. So, I don't know, Kanye West decides to release a pair of sneakers and then the whole world goes wild and buys the sneakers and all of a sudden, all of a sudden the sneakers are normal. Um, 
And so, you know, in that way, people in positions of individuals in positions of authority can dictate the trajectory of, you know, consumer society's consumption habits, what's considered normal in the sneaker realm. Um, Okay. So that, and then, you know, there's media marketing, advertising, um, and those things which will try and associate certain ways of thinking about the world with certain products. So, you know, classic Coca-Cola ad, you see people on a beach playing volleyball, running, like they're smiling, everyone's having the best time, there's music playing, um, like, you know, they're oblivious to all of the suffering in the world. (laughs) And then, you know, of course, they're like, oh, we're thirsty. And then they open this um, esky and it's full of Coca-Cola and they drink it with the setting sun in the background and oh, life's perfect if you drink Coca-Cola. So like, you know, I guess that is not, that's trying to normalize the consumption of Coca-Cola. Um, and, you know, like, I guess that's probably one of the many ways in which they have become one of the biggest um, companies in the world. They own like everything, Coca-Cola, Amatil owns like everything. Um, so yeah, normativity is dictated by images of an ideal world or highly technical language or an individual with a lot of influence who's able to kind of reshape the way we think about certain things. Um, okay, so the third thing I wanted to talk about was just like a kind of warning. Um, so in existential philosophy, there is this word that's thrown around a lot and that word is facticity. Um, and one's facticity refers to all of the things it refers to like, you know, the circumstances that are outside one's control, which influence their life. So, for example, when I was born, I was born in a city which had a a set of different cultures and which had a particular language that was spoken and which had particular attitudes to the world that it was considered normal. Um, And, you know, being born into those circumstances meant that There are all of these forces that are impacting on who I am that I don't have any control over. Um, And, you know, really, I only feel like I became aware of the world that I lived in when I was 18. I only, I think I only started to be critical of things when I was 18. Until then, I feel like I just, yeah, there was like the input of the world and then I didn't really realized that it could be any different. And then I just responded to it by, by following norms. Um, yeah. So with that in mind, facticity, um, we, there are, there are certain things that we may take for granted. Um, you know, we may think that because, because we, because, I don't know, 
Our parents worked hard to do XYZ that they are justified in behaving in XYZ way. And they're justified in doing that because it's normal for parents who have worked hard to relish, you know, the spoils of their long and hard careers. Um, And then, you know, we may end up doing the same thing, working really hard, saving up a lot of money and I don't know, following this. Okay, wait, start again. There's like, there's a normal path that has been provided to me, I feel. Um, A path that it's almost expected that I follow. And this is like the standard neoliberal path of life. So you're born, you go to school, go to kindergarten, if you're lucky. Then you go to primary school, then you go to secondary school, then you go to university, then you get a job. Then some stuff happens in between. Maybe you have a partner. Maybe you don't. Maybe you have a family. Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't want to. Um, Maybe you buy a house. Maybe you get a mortgage. Maybe you get a car. Maybe you travel a bit. Only during your four weeks holidays, though, because you're working full time. And then you retire. If If you've got a partner, I don't know. Do some stuff with your partner. What do old retired people do? Um, I don't know. They suddenly discover that they're really interested in Italian cuisine and that, you know, Southern European culture is rich. And then you go to Italy for a while. And then you and then you kind of get really old and you go into a nursing home and then you die. So that sounds like a pretty normal life. Um, at least a life that's adhering to a pretty normal path. But, you know, fuck that. Who the fuck wants that? Um, I don't, like, and this is where, this is where existential philosophy has a really powerful message. And the message is that you need to figure out for yourself what is, what you want to be normal in your eyes. Because, While you'll be pushed by society to believe that XYZ is normal, and while it may feel that XYZ is normal, that doesn't have to be normal in your world. You can change your behavior. You can think about the world in a a very different way. Um, If you want to, you know, like, I'm an advocate for people really thinking about what they want to study before they study it, because I didn't do that. I followed the path when I was younger. I went straight from high school into a law degree without even thinking about, you know, whether it was actually something I wanted to do. I did it because I was told that this would guarantee employment, blah, blah, blah. Um, Fuck that. It fucked me up. It's probably, yeah, it's one of the reasons why um, I fell into a deep depression for a few years um, because I... I didn't feel like I had any uh, mastery over my life. And this is where challenging, this is w- one thing that challenging normativity can bring. It can bring mastery. Um, if you want to learn more about self-authorship and that kind of stuff, you should go back and listen to a podcast I did called Is Existentialism a Waste of Time? 
And in that episode, it'll be on my website or it'll be on Spotify or iTunes. Oh, it's actually on YouTube as well. Yeah, it's on YouTube too. Um, In that one, I talk about why, I talk about the question of how to, you know, the question of being, how to define your own values, um, how to find, how to find out what's really important for you. Anyway, that's enough. I hope that was interesting. If you enjoyed it, um, yeah, think about supporting me on Patreon if it's within your means. Um, if you're listening on a podcast platform, go leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. If you're watching on YouTube, thanks for watching. Like, subscribe, tell a friend, whatever. Anyway, thanks. Bye.